Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Family Stories, where rattling good yarns are in plentiful supply thanks to you, our listeners, sending them in. This episode takes us from bombed-out Bremen through to the Battle of Monte Cassino. We start with Mark Rainier, who says, I very much enjoy your podcast, gentlemen. Your recent story about the liberation of 5,000 cases of champagne was a cracking story and resonated since I used to be a wine merchant myself. My grandfather was a French émigré in London at the turn of the last century importing French wine to Britain. And after the war, my father, Peter, carried on the business. He sent this letter to my grandfather from Bremen in May 1945, days before the end of the war. Dear Father, as usual, when I write to you, it always seems to be because I am wanting something. This time, it is the income tax bogey. I haven't seen any payslips from the army since my last leave over a year ago, 
so I don't quite know what I'm getting from the government for bumping off the late Hitler's SS bodyguards. If they paid me per head of live Jerry Court, I'd be quite a rich man by now. You will have heard from the wireless what our past activities have been. For us, it has been a long, hard battle and the carrier platoon has been right in front all the way. We were the first to break into the suburbs of Bremen and once again my guardian angel has been with me all the way. We have been operating out in front of the battalion and the battalion was leading the advance of the division. We have had our little excitements. We got cut off and surrounded once and my own carrier, on another occasion, got a direct hit from an anti-tank gun at about 700 yards. We had just left it to search a wood when a well-camouflaged gun firing from the outskirts of town knocked it for six. With it went my new pair of spectacles and all my personal kit which I was carrying at the time, my washing and shaving tackle, writing materials and one blanket, army issue. Could you possibly replace them? A decent shaving brush and razor, shaving soap and some writing stuff as per last time. I'm using the army stuff at the moment but it is not much good these days. Bremen is a fine testimonial of the accuracy of the RAF. Those areas that have been military targets are well and truly flattened into bricks and rubble. After the barrage we sent over, it was quite impossible to decide, as leading troops, which was the street and which the buildings. Everything that could burn was burning merrily, and what couldn't was just another dump of rubble and mortar. It was equally easy to walk over what was once a factory in error for what one thought might be a main street or what one thought might be a square. And yet, in purely residential quarters, most of the windows were not even cracked, let alone the houses damaged. The cathedral, which is only a couple of streets away from the main railway station, a military target, lost all its windows but suffered very little other damage. Hats off to Bomber Command. They have done a great job and their last raid, the night before we attacked, was a magnificent, if terrifying, sight. Amongst my souvenirs collected, I number a dozen bottles of Chateau Cheval Blanc 1920 and a couple of Peace Porter Grafenberg 1937, a bottle of Chateau Margaux 1911, and a miscellaneous collection of port and liqueurs. With the aid of the above, life has almost become bearable. Well, Father, so much for now and more later on. Everyone here is at the top of their form, and all are hoping that this at last is the end. I think there is no doubt about it, and I am proud to have had a very small part in these momentous doings. Love to all, and keep some 1878 for me. Peter. Mark adds one postscript. The wine my dad collected as a souvenir, Chateau Cheval Blanc 1920, was, and is, one of the greatest wines ever made. Regards, Mark. And this was sent to us by listener Zach Pease. Hello James and Al. I've recently discovered the podcast and have been listening avidly. As a Yank, it's been interesting to hear a different perspective on the war. Love the pod. I thought I might take a moment to share my family story about World War II and an interesting modern addendum to it. My grandfather, Paul Pease, was a sergeant in the United States Army Air Forces. He flew as a nose gunner in B-24 Liberators with the 779th Bomb Squadron, 15th Air Force, based in Pantanella, Italy. His aircraft was named the Black Jig, after the phonetic call sign for the letter J. The 15th Air Force required 50 missions before crews were rotated home. The Black Jig was shot down on his 46th mission. On December 17, 1944, his aircraft lifted off late for a maximum effort strike on the chemical plant in Blechhammer. 
the Black Jig had engine trouble and they failed to join their squadron on takeoff. They eventually joined the bomber stream but had no comms with the squadron. The formation was bounced by Luftwaffe fighters prior to reaching the target and the Black Jig was damaged and fell out of formation. At this point, the aircraft was set upon by a flight of Fokker Wolf 190s and damaged further, this time fatally. My grandfather said he had no idea the order to abandon the aircraft had gone out until he traversed his nose turret to engage a fighter and saw his crew exiting the bomb bay of the Black Jig. He looked behind him to see that the bombardier had already gone. He moved to jump through the nose gear bay situated directly behind his gun turret. As he exited the aircraft, his parachute rig became tangled and he had to climb back in and free himself before jumping clear of the aircraft. On the ground, he was picked up by Wehrmacht patrols and sent as a prisoner of war to Stalagluft 1 in Bart, Germany, where the ranking American was the fighter ace Francis Gabi Kabreski. The Russians liberated the camp in May 1945. So my interesting modern addendum is that I am a scale aircraft modeler. Yep, airfix. And I shared my grandfather's story with modeler friends on Facebook. A British member of the group sent me an online message which floored me. It turns out this gentleman's wife is from a village in the Czech Republic, near where my grandfather's aircraft came down. He told me there's a monument erected to the black jig in the village, close to where the wreckage settled. I was absolutely amazed. Not only that this monument exists, but that I found out about it through a random telling of my grandfather's story. What an unbelievably small world we live in. My mom and dad had planned a trip to the Czech Republic last year, and I shared this story with my dad, who arranged to visit the site of the monument. Unfortunately, Covid scuttled the trip. Regards, Zach Pease. Next up is Steve Wren, who tells us about his grandfather, James Knott. Steve takes up the story. My grandfather joined the Auxiliary Air Force in 1932, serving with 608 Squadron based at Thornaby in Teesside, where he was trained as an air gunner. 608 was then a Coastal Command Squadron, and their war started on the 21st of September 1939, when he flew their first sortie, one of many abortive anti-submarine patrols. He flew operationally until 1943, his last sortie being over the beaches at Salerno. He then moved to a training role in the Middle East and ended the war as a flight lieutenant. He only really talked about the amusing bits of his war service and only ever gave me one piece of advice based on it, which was, never fly over the American Navy. When I was a child, he seemed utterly fearless. We'd go anywhere. Fences and keep out signs did not apply to my granddad and me. It was only after he died that I found out about the nightmares that plagued him throughout his life. The dream was always the same. He was trapped in his gun turret and the flames were getting closer. Many years later, my wife and I lived on a large country estate in the north of England where she was the head gardener. One of her garden volunteers was an ex-RAF man. Let's call him Dave. Dave had been a fighter pilot with an exciting career including surviving ejecting from a Phantom just before it fell into the North Sea. He was the quintessential fighter pilot. Smart, well-organised and great company. He was also incredibly competitive and had an ego the size of a small planet. In particular, Dave did not like to be told he was wrong. One Christmas, we were seated next to each other at a party and got to talking. He mentioned that his father had served in the RAF during the war, so I asked which squadron. With absolute certainty, he told me 603 City of Edinburgh Squadron. He then described what aircraft the squadron flew, 
where they had been based and who their CEO was. It all started to sound very familiar, so I told Dave that he was describing my grandfather's squadron. 608. This did not go down well. He was adamant that I was wrong. I tried to persuade him, but with no luck. We parted amicably, but I was confused. Dave was so sure that I began to doubt myself. The next day, I searched through the information I had about my grandfather's service and found something that made me laugh out loud. A few weeks later, I was able to collar Dave and show him a press cutting from 1941. The story was entitled T-Sides Air Defenders and told how 608 Squadron's weekend flyers were making war history. The squadron had taken the journalists up for a flight and were photographed on their return. The crew pictured included my grandfather and Dave's father as well. Not only were they in the same bloody squadron, they were in the same bloody crew. Steve Wren This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Jane Gulliford Lowe's, or Lydia Jane as we know her, 
is a great friend of the pod. She sent us this story. My grandfather, James Grock, was called up for army service in early 1940 and joined the Royal Engineers. He was trained in mine warfare and bridge building and was duly dispatched with his unit to North Africa in September 1942. He very nearly didn't get there after his troop ship was torpedoed off the coast at Bone. They eventually managed to limp into port and Jim was sent up to the front at Souk El Arba. His job was to clear minefields with the aid of a pointy stick and a metal detector and he saw several of his comrades blown up. His unit captured a truck full of German mines and they spent hours taking them apart and putting them back together again. He described this exercise as a godsend. Jim and his unit were involved in the Battle of Tunis and he was offered a commission. He turned it down when he discovered it was in the infantry, stating to his CO that he had no intention of becoming cannon fodder, sir. Jim was then sent to Taranto in the second phase of the invasion and spent his time building pontoon bridges and clearing minefields, winding up a casino in February 1944. He was there during the battle for several weeks and was never able to speak about it. His unit were pulled out and sent to Naples, just in time for the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Jim spent the rest of the war fighting his way up Italy and was one of the first British servicemen to enter Venice with his mate Alfie Hill. The first thing they did was hitch a ride on a gondola. Jim survived the war and enjoyed a lifelong love affair with Italy, returning many times. Despite the torpedoes, minefields, casino and everything else, Jim lived to the ripe old age of 92, passing away peacefully in his sleep. He was my hero, and I have him to thank for my love of World War II history. This one's from Peter Miles. My father, Ron Miles, was called up to the Navy aged 19 in September 1941. After training, he was assigned to Queen Emma, a converted Dutch North Sea ferry, which was part of the second assault landing craft flotilla. He took part in a number of commando raids as a doorman on an LCA. His job was to open the door, drop the ramp, then jump out and physically hold the LCA head onto the beach. He was part of the ill-fated raid on Dieppe, his LCA dropped 30 soldiers of the Royal Regiment of Canada at Puy, Blue Beach. Three of the soldiers were immediately wounded on the ramp and he dragged them back aboard. Returning later that day to Blue Beach, his LCA was unable to embark any of the survivors sheltering under the sea wall. As he wrote in his autobiography, the Royal Regiment of Canada was no more. He also took part in the Allied landings in North Africa. He then rounded the Cape of Good Hope and via the Suez Canal was part of the invasion of Sicily with the 8th Army. He had a lucky escape at Sicily. During the trip round the Cape, he had switched landing craft, and during the landings, his old LCA was sunk with all hands. By May 1944, he was on a converted Thames lighter, converted to carry petrol and other fuel. He was offshore on D-Day, which he described with these comments. When we fetched up in the landing area, amidst the pandemonium of the occasion, we were not to beach our barge, but to anchor just offshore, where we were required to supply to any Tom, Dick or Harry who wanted it. Apparently, my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty wanted us to keep a rigid documentation of who had what amount. This, mark you, at the start of the invasion of all invasions, and on the first day. Both us, as the suppliers, and those we supplied, found this arrangement more than inconvenient when fighting a war, so we decided to show some innovation. On the second day, we left a polite notice by the side of the refuelling pump. 
In effect, it said, help yourself, but when you've tanked up, write down the amount taken, plus your vessel's number on the iron deck of the barge. This was to be done with the piece of chalk supplied by the management. On the third day, we threw the chalk over the side and didn't bother again. In early 1945, Dad was assigned to HMS LST 382, bound for the Far East. Out East, he was part of the force that liberated Rangoon, and he was in Bangkok when the war against Japan came to an end. What he witnessed in the Far East, in particular the treatment of Allied POWs by the Japanese, caused him to carry a fierce dislike of all things Japanese. He never showed any of his deep resentment to the Germans. In fact, Dad was very pro-Europe. Dad finally left the Navy in 1951, still only an AB seaman. Dad died aged 97 in 2019. Peter Miles And this one comes from Neil York Wade. My grandfather, James York Wade, was born into a military family in 1917 in India. His father was a sergeant in the Indian Army, and when he retired, he stayed in the country that he loved. James followed his father into the Army in India, joining as a boy soldier before being transferred to the Royal Artillery stationed in Shubury Barracks, Southend-on-Sea. He married my grandmother and was then deployed to France as part of the BEF. As the pocket collapsed around Dunkirk, men were told, if you can swim, give it a go and make your way to the boats offshore. James wasn't happy with the thought of ending up in the bag, so he did just that and swam out to a boat and got back to England. On arrival home, he applied for a transfer to the Royal Air Force. This was granted, and although he wanted to be a fighter pilot, he ended up in Bomber Command and was shipped out to Canada for flight training. In 1942, he was commissioned as a flying officer and posted to Coastal Command, Middle East. He flew operations in the Mediterranean and was credited in capturing a U-boat, a moment captured on gun camera. After obtaining the rank of temporary wing commander, he moved to the Far East and served in Burma until the end of the war. Still looking for adventure, he flew in the Berlin airlift and then went to fly for British European Airways. But he still had a yearning for adventure and for a fight, so didn't take to peacetime too well. The Malaya emergency offered him a chance to return to the jungle and he went as a police officer to fight the communists. Sadly, he died in 1957 whilst waiting to start a new adventure in Canada where he had first learned how to fly during the war. I never met him and he died so young, but he led a full life and was always looking for the next adventure. Our final contribution this week comes from Michael Thompson. This is his family story. Hello. And thank you for the wonderful podcast and the many hours of enjoyment it brings. I have a few anecdotes about my great uncle, William White Thompson, referred to lovingly in the family as Uncle Bill. He served in the 1st South African Infantry Division in the Western Desert Campaign in 1942. The middle child of three, he was born to middle-class parents in a rural town in Natal Province, South Africa. His father had a job on the railways, but when Uncle Bill was still very young, his father was killed in an accident. That left his mother to raise him, his younger sister and his older brother. She did a magnificent job and all three children were well educated and very involved in civic life. When war broke out, Uncle Bill was just at school leaving age. His older brother, my grandfather, was studying for a chemical engineering degree. 
Apparently, chemical engineers were in short supply and his application to join the military was turned down. Uncle Bill, however, was accepted, and from what he told me, his war experience was something between a Rambo film and an episode of Geordie Shaw. He used to recount the story of how an Egyptian watermelon seller once sold him a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey at an exorbitant price. Upon opening it, he discovered that the liquid inside was actually tea, and that the bottle cap had been cleverly resealed so as to appear unopened. Very angry, Uncle Bill held the grudge, and weeks later the same Egyptian approached him, again offering whisky and not remembering him. Uncle Bill played along, getting another sapper to engage the watermelon seller in conversation at the front of his donkey cart, while he went round the back. Uncle Bill loosened the net covering the stacked load of watermelons, then casually walked around to the front of the cart and smacked the rump of the Egyptian's donkey, causing the donkey to go one way and the watermelons the other. On another occasion... Uncle Bill was going on R&R to the city of Alexandria. It was a very sophisticated and cosmopolitan city, with lots of French expats living there. On the train, he met the daughter of the owner of one of Egypt's biggest breweries, Stella Lager. This is still a huge beer brand in Egypt today. She was French and spoke no English, and he spoke no French, but she gave him her number, which he memorised as he had no paper or pencil to write it. Over 60 years later, he still recalled... Quatre, un, quatre, quatre, cinq. Anyway, they hit it off quite significantly and her parents were evidently not there because he ended up overstaying his leave at her family villa by a considerable time. The Allies' administrative system was apparently in chaos at that time and he got back to his unit without getting into any trouble but loaded with cases of free beer. On a more sobering note, he recounted one occasion when his unit were on a desert patrol. They came across an Italian tank in the middle of nowhere, with no crew in sight. Assuming it was broken down and abandoned, they approached it with caution. Uncle Bill quietly climbed onto the tank from one side, and another soldier from the other, and they threw grenades into the hatch. The crew was sleeping inside, their tank evidently having broken down. Uncle Bill passed away in 2004 when I was in my early 20s. Sadly, it was before I had developed my deep interest in the Second World War, but his intriguing and entertaining war stories will always live on. Kind regards, Michael Thompson. Well, what an extraordinary set of stories. I hope you've enjoyed hearing them as much as we enjoy reading them. If you'd like your family story to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or go on our members' site and leave it under the Family Stories tab. Remember, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening and bye for now.